Father, we're so thankful once again uh, for our great and wonderful Savior. Father, thank you for his willingness not only to die for us, Father, but for his power to, to raise him from the dead. And Father, for the victory you've given him over, over hell and Father's sin in our lives. And, and for the glorious future he is preparing and planning for us, Father. And Father, as well for your presence and your promises in our daily life here, Father. And so I pray today as we gather that our attention would be gathered to our Savior, what he has to teach us, what he has to say to us. Father, you've told us in this book to have the mind of Christ, Father, and may you settle our hearts and quiet us today, Father. May we be ready to, to be taught of you, to learn from you, Father, and may we allow your spirit to put his finger on our hearts and lives and things that we need to learn, things that may need to change, things that, things that you might seek to develop into Christ-likeness in our lives. And Father, we're thankful that you are the one who does the work. You have the power to do the work. Thank you that you can change us, Father, even in spite of ourselves, in spite of our weaknesses, and in spite of our shortcomings, Father, you're doing a mighty work in us to make us like Christ, Father. And we're so thankful for that. And we trust you would do that work even today. Father, we pray for those who are away from us today, wherever they are, that you'd watch over them, keep them safe, and do that work in them as well, Father. And Father, may we as your children um, be not only the, the example we ought to be to one another, Father, but the light to the world that you would desire. That Jesus might shine through us. And that you would open our mouths, Father, that we might be bold in our witness, that we might see the world around us not as nuisances, but as opportunities to share the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, embolden us today, we pray. And Father, we pray for um, those among us who have struggles and heartbreaks and, and hurts and trials, Father. We commit one another to you. We pray especially for Mavis, Father, and her family. She lost her brother-in-law, Father. And just pray that you would watch over them as they, as they um, say goodbye, Father, that you would bring comfort and the comfort and the comfort of your presence to this family, even during this time. And Father, for others, Father, as we um, face the various challenges of life, thank you that you are our present help in trouble. And Father, we pray that you would provide the comfort and the strength you promised to each one of us. Father, we pray too for those around our world that's teaching your word, Father, and truth. Some worshiping and learning in hostile areas of persecution and opposition. Father, in possible conditions of war-torn countries, Father, we just pray you'd watch over each one of us. And Father, I trust, thank you that as a father, you care for your children, and we trust you'll care for them. Even for us today, Father, may we realize that we're in a spiritual battle here. May you equip us to be the soldiers of the cross that we ought to be. So be our teacher and guide, and we pray as we open your word. In Jesus' name, I read an article recently written by a pastor several years ago who led a large church that made an observation in his time of Christianity in the, in the churches, Christian churches around our nation. And he identified as one of the things that bothered him in regards to church attendance and the erratic attendance of church and the shrinking membership of churches is because saints aren't enjoying churches. And he said if you would just drive around and watch people come into church, on their, daily, on their daily Sunday routine, he said, you'd see people often that were, you know, kind of dragging their chins across the ground, half asleep, half focused, you know, not really looking forward to seeing the person next to them in the pew and so on. There was no great anticipation of uh, the enjoyment of the Lord together as saints. And he said he compared it to a, to a sporting event or an entertain, entertainment event where people, you know, ta tailgating and excited and, you know, and they're pumped up and they're ready to go. And he says, there shouldn't be that kind of difference where people come to church and drag in if they show up at all because they might actually have something more enjoyable to do. And the question he asked, he said, is, and it was challenging, he said, should this be the way it should be? 
Should the world in its excitement of its worldly entertainments, you know, outdo, outjoy, you might say, the children of God? And when we really ask ourselves, we say, you know, who has more to celebrate? Who has more to fist pump? You know, the, those that attend entertainment and sporting events or believers who sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus to learn eternal truths about a glor- our glorious creator and all his love and goodness for him. To learn of the power that he wants to work in us and through us to those who are hurting and needy in, in the communities around us. And maybe one of the problems is today that believers look to church as something that should thrill and entertain them, just like attending a sporting event. And generally, when you come to a church that have, you know, old gray-haired, dulcet-toned preachers like me, it's not that exciting and entertaining. But we forget that the reason we come is not to have our ears tickled or be entertained or to be emotionally stimulated, at least not primarily. We come to learn about Jesus. We come to sit at his feet. We come to diligently and laboriously study his word, and he's the one who thrills our soul. He's the one that arouses the excitement when we see wonderful truths in his words. We mine out these, these, these teachings and dynamics that God wants to make real in his life as we see his might and his goodness and his love. That's what thrills and unites us, and maybe we've lost sight of that. Or maybe we've just generally lost sight of the joy of the Lord in our lives. And so everything we do in our Christianity is out of duty and obligation rather than in that anticipation of a relationship. You know, just like, you know, God told Israel back in Jeremiah at this time of, of stagnancy, spiritual stagnancy, he says, I remember the day of, your, of, of our youth, you know, with the love of our spousals, when you went after me in the wilderness. There was a pursuit there. And he's using the analogy of a young couple falling in love. And he says, God says, I remember how it used to be. And it's not that way anymore. Maybe that's one of the issues as well. And there are probably several issues. We could probably spend the whole day identifying potential things that have, that have brought drudgery, oftentimes dullness, to the fellowship of the saints and the joy of believers. But one of them is, is mentioned here in our context. Philippians known as a book of joy, and yet Paul here mentions something that is a joy killer in this book. We find rejoicing mentioned here, <coughs> but before the rejoicing, we find a problem he identifies in verses 2 and 3 when he identifies these two ladies as having a disagreement when he encourages Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And conflict will always be something that kills kills joy, doesn't it? Whether it's in a relationship in our homes or in the churches. And apparently Yodia and Syntyche were in some kind of disagreement that apparently was affecting the whole church enough to where Paul brought public attention to it. And maybe that conflict was hindering the church from fulfilling what Paul had taught them in chapter 1, verse 27, to strive together for the faith of the gospel, or here in the first verse of chapter 4, to, to, to stand fast in the Lord together. And maybe that's why Paul gave that encouraging appeal to unity in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, when he tells them to be of one mind and of one accord and take, taking on themselves the mind of Christ. And so Paul names, this, names them in this public letter, you know, and it's, there's a lot of people named in Scripture, people that were companions of Paul, and uh, this is probably one occasion maybe we, these two ladies wish they were not named. When we meet them in eternity, we're going to remember them. Oh, you were the two ladies that were, that were, that were having a, a disagreement in the church of Philippi. But God mentions it because one of the greatest things God desires in his family is to get, get along. And we should, as parents, we shouldn't go that, what that's like. He wants unity in his family. Jesus prayed for it in John 17. God encourages that unity to be 
thought in Ephesians 4 where he says to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Psalm 133, that wonderful psalm, he talks about the beauty of unity illustrated in, in, in Aaron. And Jesus himself has mentioned in John 17 that one of the marks of Christianity, of the reality of Christ in us that the unsaved world should see is unity. In John 17, verse 20, he says this, I do not pray for these alone, his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's you and I today, isn't it? That's where our, test, that's where our faith comes from, from the word that's been passed on through the, through the word of God through generations. And he prays this, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect and one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so God values unity. It says one of the testimonies to the world of the reality of Christ in us when when God can take people of different backgrounds, different cultures, different opinions, different perspectives, and make them work together for a unified cause in seeking to serve Jesus Christ together. We also see in the scriptures that God says that brotherly love, forgiveness, long-suffering, and grace should characterize the fellowship of the saints. In Ephesians 4, 30-32, it says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. But be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. It says a similar thing in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Peter also addresses this in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another with, fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You think unity is important to God? The expression of forgiveness, compassion, brotherly love, and so on? It absolutely is. It's threaded throughout the pages of Scripture. And here, this conflict had violated these dynamics. It had, it had upset the testimony of Jesus Christ in the assembly in Philippi and really became, no doubt, a joy killer. You know, when, when, when those two ladies would walk in the doors of the church and go their separate ways and sit on this side of the church or this side of the church, it creates tension, doesn't it, when that conflict exists, uh, exists in the family of believers, which ought not to be. And so Paul says here, resolve it. He says, I implore you. I'm begging you. I'm encouraging you to be of the same mind in the Lord. He's saying resolve it. Now, we know conflict is going to occur when sinners gather. But Paul is saying here, resolve it immediately because it has a tendency to fester and spread. We see that in the scriptures, don't we? Conflict festers. It spreads. It sinks its roots in very deeply. The public mention of this may indicate that everyone knew about it and sides may have been being taken. Team building may have been occurring. Because that's what happens in co unresolved conflict. 
we don't usually keep it to ourselves. It spreads to others, and, and it ends up taking sides, and it festers and spreads, and pretty soon you're team building, and, and pretty soon these things become unresolved, and the hurt deepens, and the chasm wide widens, and it turns into generational resentment from which there seems to be no return. Ugly, ugly, ugly. That's the flesh. And that's why Paul is imploring them. This seems like a simple disagreement, whatever it might be. Who knows? It might have been, where do we hang the dish rags in, this, in the kitchen? Who knows what, what the disagreement was about? But it was affecting the church. And before it got worse, there was an encouragement here to resolve it. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, it says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Unresolved conflict fails the grace of God. It doesn't express grace in relationships. Instead, it, it creates bitterness, and it spreads, causes trouble, and many become defiled. Sounds kind of hopeless sometimes, doesn't it? But there is hope with the Lord. I don't care how deep, how hurt, how long it's been, God can heal the broken and the brokenhearted. And he says here to resolve it. The church should not operate like the unsaved. It should not be Hatfields and McCoys. It just should not be that way. That's how the unsaved operate. They don't know any better, by the way. But God does. We're under a higher law and a better motivation, the love of Christ, are we not? And so this passage, I believe, somewhat addresses that restoration here. He goes on to say, he says, tell, tells them the resolution when he says be of the same mind in the lord and I, as i mentioned we've seen this before in this chapter it's really what revolves around chapter 2 verse 5 let this mind be in you which is all also in christ jesus have his mind in the matter adopt to his thinking rather than our own ego defending opinion defending gender promoting self have his mind instead of ours and so to have the mind of christ is to seek god's truth in the issue it's to prioritize his will, not my agenda. And that's not always easy. But just look at the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say in his life with regards to his will? Not my will be done, but thine. If the God of the universe, in his role as the Son of God, can say that, you and I uh, need to prioritize the will of God. Because in any group, we'll have difference of opinion, but we're to seek God and God's will in all matters. We're to defer our will to the will of the Father. And when you begin to do that, conflict begins to dissolve away. When the God's will is, becomes absolute priority. So in the issue, we seek his mind, his will, his truth. Towards others, we seek the mind of Christ in regards to love and forgiveness and grace and compassion. We've read about that. That should characterize the saints. When you think of Dealing with conflict when dealing with others, we see in the scriptures a few different dynamics that we're to engage in. We see, first of all, this idea of grace, as Hebrew mentions. You know, the basic attitude we're to have towards each other is the expression of grace. Think forbearance and long-suffering. And we extend grace to one another. Even if the way they do things kind of grits on my nerves, crosses my grain. We think grace. God's God created them. God's dealing with them. We extend grace to one another. We forbear and we're long-suffering. We accept one another just like God's accepted us. That's the beauty of grace in the Christian family. The second thing we do is in, in, 
and when there's differences amongst us, is forgiveness, the obvious one. The 70 times 7 principle, you might say, when Peter asks. And that verse mentions in Ephesians 4.32, we're to forgive as God forgave us. Now that's a pretty high standard. Because God forgave us completely and unconditionally. That's God's forgiveness towards us. And it wasn't, and it isn't until we experience that, enjoy that, reflect on that, that we can experience the grace of forgiveness towards others. Because the flesh wants its pound of flesh. It wants vengeance. That's natural and normal. And it can make forgiveness hard as long as we are focused on ourselves. But when we're operating in the grace of God, in the mind of Christ, he enables us to forgive. Sometimes we just, even things that have been deep-seated and long-term, God will give us the grace to forgive. Well, sometimes that becomes even difficult, and so we're also told to approach others. If the conflict is so severe and we cannot extend grace and we have trouble forgiving, there is that terrible idea of having to actually approach another person because none of us like to do it. Few of us go there. But we have to ask ourselves, how, how highly do we value the testimony of Christ? How highly do we value the instruction of God's word? Because this is what God says. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar. Well, that's kind of what we're doing here. We're not, we're, not, we're not worshiping in the tabernacle, so it's not quite the same, but the pattern's the same. We're gathering together to worship our God. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God wants reconciliation before service and worship. That's what he says here. He says, put down your Bibles, go out the door and go reconcile. If that means extending grace or forgiveness, that's what God says to do. And so we, so we have extending grace, we have forgiving one another, we have approaching them for the purpose of restoration, not approaching them for the, for the cause of making them grovel. That's sometimes the way we approach it. We approach it for the glory of God and for the purpose of the restoration of the unity of the saints. God is glorified. The last thing we may have to do, and there might be cases where we involve others. You know, the passage in Matthew 18 says, if your brother, brother sins against you, you tell him between you and him alone, by the way. You don't team build. You don't ask another's opinion. You go tell it between him. You, you tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, it goes on to say, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, and he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Well, that's serious stuff. But God takes unity seriously. And this may be the exception to the rule, but what God is saying here is to, sometimes you have to involve others to help resolve the conflict. And that's what he says here, by the way, in verse 2. Excuse me, 3. When he says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women. Help them. And so whoever this true companion is, we're not sure who it is, whether the pastor of the church or whoever this may have been addressed to. Assume somebody who is a leader in, in the church. He says, help them. Now in this verse, he recognizes that these ladies were godly ladies. They had served side by side with Paul and Clement and all these other companions of Paul. They had served the Lord together. Their names are written in the book of life, which is a record of the children of God, according to Revelation 20.15. He acknowledges that they were laborers in the gospel. They were not bad people. They were just making bad decisions or expressing bad attitudes, and the conflict had occurred. But he says, help them. 
Maybe that helping them is pointing them back to the mind of Christ, to the will of God, to the grace of God in their relationship, and to the glory of God in their unity. There are times when other believers of the church must speak, step in and say, enough. It's time to put away this bitterness, this long, deep-seated bitterness, this anger, this resentment, this criticism, and deal with things like children of the Most High God. That's what he's telling them. Step in. Before it gets worse, step in. This might be times. Now, this is the exception. It doesn't mean that we play spiritual detective in each other's lives and point fingers every time one of us trips and falls. No, we're here to lift each other up. But when, chasm, when chasms of conflict begin to widen, there's times when you have to take Paul's advice here. He says, help these women. Help them get, get moving in the right direction. Basically, he says, because we're family. We're brethren. And God can heal the deepest of hurts. Well, then he goes on here, and I don't think this is a shift in focus where he says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. When you get to verse 4, you tend to, tend to think that this is a shift in thought, that there is a big period after verse 3, and verse 4 starts a new thought. But what you really see in the context of these next few verses is a continuation. You see a continuation of things that will help prevent and resolve conflict. And while these are tremendous principles in verses 4, 5, and 6 and onwards, what we really see are things that, as well that help teach us about unity in the family of God. And so what you really have here is you have both a context which teaches about the unity of the family of God, but within that context, God lays out these great, wonderful principles that are broader and applicable to all areas of life, like rejoicing in the Lord, like, being, like bringing your prayers to God and the peace of God ruling in your hearts and thinking on these things. Those are great principles that, that apply beyond this specific application, but God uses this opportunity, this occasion to, to lay out these principles, and we are going to go back and look at these principles once again, these dynamics which are broad in our lives, but this morning we're going to look at the specifics of the context. Because I believe he is here in this dynamic of rejoicing the Lord, he is telling them that it's the focus of having the mind of Christ. It's a, it's a change of focus to putting your minds on the things of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. Well, rejoicing is always in the Lord. We don't have this kind of joy in ourselves. We don't even find it from a sporting event or entertainment event or from any other event in our lives. Though there are things that God has given us that brings us happiness and excitement and thrills, deep-seated stability of joy comes only in our relationship with Jesus Christ, and so we rejoice in Him. And really what this is telling these ladies, and maybe coaching this, this conflict coach here in this passage, is it's time to have a change of focus. Let's get your eyes off the issue, off of the other, and on to Jesus Christ. And allow his love, his joy to soften hearts and unite us once again. Because in the midst of conflict, our focus can be so consumed with the offense and the offender. That we can be just become so consumed when the hurts are so deep. So much so that we lose sight of all spiritual reason. We lose sight of the love of Christ. We lose sight of the will and glory of God. We lose sight of the love for the brethren. 
We lose sight of all that spiritual reason and dynamics. And when we rejoice in the Lord, we shift our focus to Him. You know what happens? We can begin to see how petty and unimportant, unimportant our gripe is. That's the first thing that happens. I've seen this happen repeatedly. I remember counseling with a fellow who had a problem with someone in the church, and he was angry, really angry, and really hardened in his bitterness. And um, after a few discussions, and he uh, finally realized that maybe part of the problem was a misconception, but often are. We think perception is reality, and so often it is not. That's just Satan's way of duping us when we're already angry to deepen the hurt. And when I said, okay, when he began to soften after a few discussions, I said, do you want to approach the person? He began to say, well, I don't know if it's really that important. And this guy was really angry. There wasn't an elder in the church. He may have been yelling and cursing and screaming angry. But he began to soften, and that's what happens. When we rejoice in the Lord, we begin to see how petty and unimportant our gripe is and how unimportant it is about uh, gratifying our ego. And maybe we also begin to see that God has allowed this issue in my life for my growth. He works all things together for good. He's a sovereign God. He allowed this to occur, and I need to trust him and rejoice in him. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I don't even maybe like what you're doing, but I can rejoice in the Lord because he's got this, so to speak. And so we find this change of focus instruction to find our joy in the Lord and get our eyes off the offense and the offender. And then verse 5, he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now the word gentleness means graciousness. Some versions use the word forbearance. I think the interlinear defined this as reasonableness. And I think uh, one dictionary defined this as yielding. Gentleness. When I read this verse, though, and I say, let your gentleness, I think, I didn't know I had any. Let your gentleness, that's the problem. I don't have any. That's the problem in the first place. And so what he's referring to is the gentleness that Christ develops in us. These are, these are, this characteristic is the characteristics of the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, don't let these attitudes of bitterness rule in your relationships. Ex express gentleness, reasonableness. Graciousness, forbearance, and having the mind of Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 3. We'll come back here. But I think James just kind of expounds and expands on this very same dynamic in James chapter 3. James chapter 3 is about conflict that occurs because of the tongue. Imagine that. And this is what he says at the end of the chapter. James 3, verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, in this midst of conflict, it doesn't seem like anybody is. Well, that's why he asked the question. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But, in contrast to the meekness of wisdom, gentleness, you could say, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. And I think he talks about boasting because those in conflict often makes the most, most amount of noise, don't they? This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's a pill we need to swallow. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and everything are there. But, and we love the, the word but, it brings a contrast. The wisdom that is from above is first, pure, and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Notice where it comes from, it's from above. It's not from me, it's from, it's from having the mind of Christ. 
willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Rightness, righteousness in relationships is sown by those who have the wisdom that is from above. And so going back to Philippians chapter 4, let your gentleness, let your forbearance, let your yieldedness be known. It requires wisdom from above. It really describes a heart that is right with her God because the mind of Christ is in me. This attitude, this gentleness, this meekness, this prefer- preferring of others, which was described in Philippians in chapter 2 in those verses in 1 through 4, about preferring and honoring others, is truly an expression of Christ living in and through me. Because when we're in conflict, when we're fully engaged, it's the flesh that's expressing itself through me. Here Paul is pointing us to the, to the mind of Christ. That we're to be, let be known to all men. This is what should characterize us. Because the Lord is near. The next thing he tells us then is to pray. When we're in the midst of conflict. Pray. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Pray. Bring it over to God. Now, we recognize this verse, as I mentioned, is a great, <coughs> excuse me, overarching dynamic that rules many areas of our life. In this context, it's associated with conflict. Commit the issue to the Lord in prayer, in sincere prayer. If you want to rid yourself of the anxiety of conflict and all that goes with it, bring it to him in prayer, which brings our focus to the will of God. It lays our concerns at Jesus' feet. It opens our heart to the scrutiny of God. By the way, that's what prayer does, doesn't it? Opens our heart to God's scrutiny in our own hearts. And it expresses a dependence on him because I can't fix this. It needs fixing, but all the resentment, bitterness, and harsh words never fixes it. It deepens it. All my best attempts to generally assert my own plans fail, but he can fix it. This is reality. We find grace to help in time of need at the throne of grace, don't we, according to Hebrews chapter 4. And God can heal the hurts of hard and resentful hearts if we sincerely, honestly, and openly pray. With thanksgiving. That's an expectancy that God is going to do the work he promised to do. And the result of that is the peace of God, isn't it? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't say that it's always going to bring peace to the relationship because one person may sincerely adopt these dynamics in their lives and and bring, bring the problem honestly and humbly and transparently before God, confessing their part in the wrong. They may have, and one person may Try to respond biblically for the glory of God. You may have come to him in prayer for trusting him to work, but the other party may or may not respond. It may not always bring peace to the relationship. There's no guarantee. We know God will work, but it can bring peace to your heart, to our, my heart, when you're willing to do things biblically, when you're willing to confess you're wrong, when you seek, humbly seek the will of God, the glory of God in the relationship, the peace of God comes because you're right with God. A peace that guards your heart, keeps your mind. And hopefully it brings peace to the relationship. That's the hope and the desire. But he tells us to pray. Recognize 
the need for God's intervention to bring healing and help to what's broken. And God will bring his power, his grace, and wisdom to bear on all those involved. The next thing he tells us then in verse 8 is, this, is to meditate on these things. And I think the old King James says, think on these things. And really what he's telling us is to begin filling our minds with good stuff. And he lists some of the descriptors of good stuff here. In verse 8, he says, finally, brethren, what is everything but true? Instead of focusing on the bad, the evil of others, focus on what's true, what are noble, what are just, things that are lovely, good report, and so on, things that are virtuous. You know, some have said this is really a description of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that here, but it could be a description of him and the dynamic he seeks to demonstrate to us and in and through us. And when, when that happens, when you begin to turn, because you find these things in the Word of God, does, do you not? I mean, that should be the obvious. That's where we find these good, beautiful, pure things is in, through, is in light of God's truth and God's Word. It is a light that lightens our lives. And when you do that, it drives out and replaces all the evil thoughts of bitterness, resentment, envy, jealousy, and hatred, and realize that all those things are of the flesh. And I don't want to meditate on those things anymore. I don't want to think on those things anymore. I don't, every time I see that person or even see a bicycle that is the same color as the one they used to ride when they were a kid, remind me of all the hurt and resentment and bitterness. I don't want to be that. I don't, I don't want to be that. You know, you know, it really ruins our lives. Bitterness rocks the soul. The Bible tells us that. And, they, and we think, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. So you want, to, you want to fix it? The Bible says here, think on these things. Begin to fill our minds with the noble, the just, the pure, lovely, and good report. And maybe we've read of some of those things this morning, of the grace and for forbearance and long-suffering and love of Christ that can be real in our lives. Because we never rid ourselves of those thoughts in our own strength. It doesn't tell us here just to get rid of those thoughts alone. It says instead, meditate on these things. And meditation, by the way, biblical meditation is filling your mind with good stuff, not emptying your mind, as mysticism seeks, likes, to, likes to make you think. It doesn't say just empty your mind of all the bad stuff. So you have a void. No, God says fill it with good stuff and push the bad out. Fill it with these things. Think on these things. That's why it's so important to read the Word of God, like we're trying to do as a church in our in our monthly script in our yearly scripture reading through the New Testament and Psalms. That's what we do when we come together to gather to worship. We spend our time here, just the short amount of time we have together, filling our minds with the things of God, with the good and lovely and pure things of God, so that He can change our attitude. See, in the middle of conflict, getting beyond some of the hurts seem impossible. But they can be rid of when we keep our focus on him, when we think on these things. When we spend time seeking the person of, person of Christ, we spend time in the light of all his wonder and beauty and, and the dynamics of all he's provided us in himself. And he then will change our attitude. Remember, that's his work. Like 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my frequently mentioned verses, when we behold him as in a mirror in a glass, we're changed in his image from glory to glory. Think on these things. Once again, it's a change of focus, not only to rejoice in the Lord, but to, but to be meditating and filling our minds with that which is good in regards to the character of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 9, one more thing. He says, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. He said, do these things. Apparently Paul had both taught and practiced.
practiced and demonstrated this graciousness of spirit and loving forbearance around them. Maybe he had, he had practiced what is mentioned in verse 8 and presenting to them the good, lovely, and pure, and virtuous things to fill their minds and give them to think on, think on these things. And he says, those things that I've taught you, those things that you've seen me live, do. Follow that example. And apparently the Philippian church had seen the meekness and gentleness of Christ in Paul's ministry. It observed it in his life. Maybe things beyond what we see in these pages. And what we do see for, don't see from the Apostle Paul in the pages of his, his letters is a focus on others' flaws, offenses, and failures. Now, yes, Paul sometimes points out wrong teaching, wrong doctrine, and he exposes sometimes wrong behavior. But he's not focused on people's flaws, flaws and failures. He instead expresses a brotherly love which is accepting and gracious and forbearing and forgiving in his lives. And that's why he's saying, do these things along with me. Let's express the mind of Christ. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's express his gentleness to others. Let's come to him in prayer for strength to, to help prevent and, res and resolve, resolve conflicts in relationships. Let's think on the things of God together. When you do that, you begin to see your brothers and sisters in the Lord as an opportunity to lift up rather than to cut down. Because in reality, we're all flawed, and we all give each other a lot of reasons, don't we? But, when in, the, but in the grace of Christ, we can express this wonderful, loving acceptance. And I think that's really the message behind this passage. This is a chapter, this is a book of joy. And what Paul is saying, we can have joy in spite of those occasional conflicts and irritations that occur in our assembly. But we have to do it God's way. And when we do, this is a joyous thing to be able to be the testimony to the world that God wants us to be of the unity of Christ expressed in loving forbearance and consideration and unity with this family of God. And he goes on to tell us then in verse 9, if you do follow these advice, this advice here, these directions, these dynamics, he says, the God of peace will be with you. There we go again. The God of peace in relationships. Only God can bring peaceableness to the heart of man. And when you do these things, God's with you. That's important. God's in the room. God's on the bus. Whatever you want to say, God's involved. And when he's involved, he can bring peace. Not that there's sometimes a struggle when it takes time, but God can bring peace to the heart of man when we're willing to look to him. Because we know as people, we're inherently self-centered. And you put a couple of self-seeking individuals in a room, and you're eventually going to have conflict, aren't you? Unless we have the mind of Christ. And that's what that's saying here. The glorious thing is we can live this way. We can have this kind of family. We can be these kind of believers when we are led by the Spirit in, these, in fulfilling these dynamics. Because the Spirit of God teaches us to be God-centered, which creates the unity and peace as we seek the Lord together. And it is his presence, the God of peace, that should permeate the assembly as saints learn and grow and serve together. When that happens, going back to our introduction, church can be fun again. It can be anticipated. We can look forward to seeing others, whether it's in a, a formal assembly or just when we visit throughout the week. We can anticipate being with others of like precious faith, others who serve the Lord together, those who accept us just the way we are. You know, we, we, we stumble and bumble along as we try to serve Christ together. He says he grows us in grace. And church can be joyfully anticipated and enjoyed 
when we serve him together. Psalm 95 says this, verse 1, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Now that sounds inspiring and exciting, and that's, that's the joy that Christians share together in the love of Christ. You know, before Jesus left the earth in the upper room discourse, he says he was going to leave some things with us, didn't he? You kind of see that in those chapters, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. John 13, 34, and 35 says, The new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Now, that's a high calling. We don't have that gentleness or this love in ourselves, but we do in Christ. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So he leaves us his love. In John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He leaves us his peace. In John 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. He leaves us his joy. In preparing his disciples for the task of winning the lost ahead, he leaves them. And he's left it with us. And it's no coincidence that the fruit of the Spirit begins with love, joy, and peace. And that's what Jesus left. And that's what should characterize his children in the heart of the assembly. And that's the centerpiece of the attitudes and the dynamics that can create in us a fellowship of the saints that not only brings glory to, jo- glory to God, brings a light to the world around us, but brings a joy in us. In anticipation to the Christian fellowship. Let's pray. Father, it's always difficult to talk about conflict, Father. And it's not always easy to resolve conflict, Father, but you recognize in this passage that it does occur. It does occur in your children. You said have much to say about it in your, in the, in your Bible, uh, about preventing conflict, resolving conflict, about in maintaining unity, about enjoying the love of Christ, expressing the graciousness of Christ, the the spirit of grace and for forbearance and love and forgiveness. And Father, pray that it might, you might uh, work in our hearts, that it might characterize me, that it might characterize us. But Father, our desire is to see, have Jesus be real in us. We don't want to just be here, Father, to attend Sunday to do our duty, to hear a few words that might give us a little zing of an inspiration. But Father, as we study, diligently study and open your word, Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to see his love for us and his love through us. And Father, we pray that your spirit would make this real. Father, if we don't have the strength to have gentleness in ourselves, to have love in ourselves, if we don't find peace in ourselves, or even joy, but all those are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make these real to us. We pray now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.